0: It's time for W.A.K.R.'s This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. This Week in Tech is brought to you by Cartridge World in North Canton, your home for copiers, printers and supplies. This week, the continuing effects of climate change and how we can adapt to it. Just think back to last week, when we were all dealing with the unhealthy and uncomfortable effects of all that smoke in the air from thousands of wildfires burning out of control up in Canada. And lots of people, particularly in New York City, where the sky turned orange and the air quality index hit a record high of 450, were more than just uncomfortable. They actually got sick from asthma attacks and other breathing-related problems. CBS News reports, in fact, that all those little smoke particles we breathed in could cause some people to get sick in months to come by lowering their resistance to germs that cause illness like flu and COVID, for example. And as the planet warms, climatologists predict, these events caused by increasingly hot and dry conditions are going to be the norm, not the exception meaning we'll have to come up with ways to protect ourselves from both the heat and the smog. One way, of course, is just to stay inside where it's air conditioned, which is great if you actually have air conditioning and you don't need to leave the house to go and do anything outside. On the downside, turning up the A.C. burns more energy and actually adds to the pollution we're trying to avoid. So I thought it would be a good idea to talk to an expert in architecture and building methods about what we can do to both retrofit the places where we live and work now and design new buildings that are more energy efficient and comfortable in the future. Dr. Nick Safely is an assistant professor of environmental design in the College of Architecture at Kent State University.
1: There's been a lot of move towards lower Embodied energy materials such as wood for larger construction, which we don't really think of. You know, the majority of larger buildings today might be built out of like steel or concrete frame structures. Steel's very recyclable; concrete not as much. But things like mass timber, there's a huge mass, what's called mass timber, almost like a almost like old barns. If you think about like heavy timber, like you'd have in a barn, there's a lot of material like that that's being used in large construction. A very large uh, project in in Cleveland, housing project, is going up with this particular system it's gaining a lot of traction and it's something that we definitely teach our students because we know that it's going to be something they're going to interact with in the future because it's it's the code has changed to even allow that so
0: the idea being that like you've got a big building in Cleveland and other places where mm-hmm. instead of if they're going to build a big apartment block instead of making that all out of concrete and steel now they're going to be doing more wood frame is that what you're saying correct. And
1: not necessarily wood framing like you'd see in your house, which is like light framing or two by four studs that are spaced a certain amount, which are made, that that whole system is to allow for kind of like a a limited number of people to construct something. Think of it as almost like a steel building, but where the steel members are built out of wood, usually either cross laminated timber or glue laminated timber for the columns and for the floor slabs and things like that. So in a lot of cases, because it's a renewable resource, that becomes either a carbon sink, but it also can have a relatively low embodied energy. So that's one thing for a larger scale, new construction. Is
0: the wood strong enough?
1: It all has to go through testing, um, both for fire. The big question was fire for a long period of time. It had to go through fire testing. And it actually, like a lot of it chars on the outside and protects the inside. So, for example, like steel fails really quickly. It, it's really, really strong. and then, But once it hits a melting point, it melts like a piece of cheese.
0: Like in 9-11, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, if, and wood, it fails progressively as opposed to like all at once. And so it's only within the last iteration of the international building code that it's actually even something that everybody in the country now has a legal framework to start to build this way. It was not that way for years. And so the code is kind of caught up to popular demand being driven by like places like Portland or anywhere where there's a lot of timber, a lot of timber in the Southeast also. And so I think we're going to see more of that. We're not going to, it's not going to go away, Um, steel buildings. I think like a life cycle analysis for new construction to understand how much greenhouse gas it will put into the environment or how much energy goes into it and trying to be as kind of low impact as possible.
0: So Um, when I'm thinking about timbers and forests, I used to live in the Seattle area. And I mean, one of the differences that I noticed when I moved out there, I'm like, where's the brick houses well (laughs) there aren't any yeah every literally everything other than skyscrapers is made out of wood essentially this whole area used to be a virgin forest Mm -hmm. right and and they just chopped it out of wood and that's why it is but when i think of the pacific northwest i think of like the old growth forests right Mm -hmm. And that isn't necessarily what you'd be cutting down for this new timber right no i mean ideally no
1: um most of it would be coming from managed forests forests that are coming from either harder you know, harder or, or faster growing timber but that you know it's a good question because there's a, I have a friend who works he's finishing his PhD at McGill and that's basically exactly what he's looking at it, it won't be a necessarily a blanket solution for new construction to say like what's the least kind of energetic or what's the least impactful construction. It might change. It might be steel, like in Pittsburgh or in this part of the world where there's maybe not a lot of forestry, or maybe it's prohibitively expensive during a, a particular couple of years. It might actually end up being that steel has the least impact when you run a higher level analysis. So what like his and other people's research are looking at is like how you can find how much energy would go into like reforesting an area that might actually be kind of an old growth but like an older kind of more virgin forest versus a managed forest where you might have smaller trees and a kind of quicker overturn. So think of like paper, the way that like most softwoods are grown. So, I mean, it can come from various sources and there's a lot of people looking at different types of wood. But yeah, typically not anything that would be old growth just because it's not economical in one way. I mean, at a certain point, the kind of money isn't there, but also I think the kind of the ethic of it is not, you don't want to build it like redwood or something like that.
0: Right, right, okay. Well, also I have heard about advanced materials, where you would take a concrete or some kind Mm -hmm. of block Mm -hmm. and you would build some kind of technology into it to where it could absorb the rays of the sun during the day. And then in the cold at night, it could release that warmth Mm -hmm. into the house and conserve the energy and then release the heat yeah. so in hot
1: dry climates in particular, it like works a little differently when the ambient humidity is, is, is uh, higher, like Miami, but that actually already happens. like a concrete wall was still called th- like thermal lag or the thermal mass where it would absorb and it has a high threshold. It takes a while for it to heat up, but then it all it takes it also a high uh, a long time for it to cool down. And so like let's say you have a much more drastic shift in the ambient air temperature, say in' in Phoenix, yeah, between day and night, that lag in the thermal mass will actually keep the building a certain temperature. So yeah, that's a very common kind of passive strategy in a warming climate, which is probably not what we're used to in Northeast Ohio. I think we're more used to like uh, having to heat a building more of the time, even though there is definitely like there are days of the year where we need to cool.
0: So if somebody did want to build something mm-hmm. with that kind of material, you could get it here in Northeast Ohio. You yeah. could apply it to certain projects, right?
1: Completely, yeah. And it would, it would be finding the, the right architect or designer to work with because you can use a material very incorrectly <laughs> and it becomes just a complete waste. You know, it doesn't really do anything and you're spending more money and, and more energy upon it. So, yeah, it would be the application of its orientation, where it exists in the building. For example, like heavy timber is not necessarily great for like a single family house. They definitely happen and you and it's not a bad idea, but you have to use it in the way that maybe is the most feasible. And so, yeah, it's it's working with someone who's a kind of professional would be the best way to do it.
0: Kind of what my focus was on is now that it's summer and it's getting Mm -hmm. hotter, everybody's turning up their AC. And I was wondering, like, as I move forward with this house or other people build new houses, if there's anything that we can do with materials or Mm -hmm. construction styles, recognizing that the hot summers that we're experiencing in Ohio now, we're going to get nothing but hotter in the future. Yeah. And even though we mostly think about cold weather up here, hot weather is going to become a much bigger deal. Yeah. So is there anything that we can do now or start planning now or materials that we can look at that will repel the heat or you know, keep us cooler, more energy efficient? Have you heard of any new materials or new construction styles or anything like that?
1: Yeah, I would say that the dominant thing for both of those is if you think of your house kind of like a cooler, you know, you try to keep cool beverages inside of it during a hot day. It basically insulation is what you would use and so that's true for new construction or for retrofitting where you're just trying to raise the R value of the resistance to heat flow in the wall. But in either either case. So if you have an existing house, particularly if it's wood framed, just insulating your attic or insulating the roof, insulating the walls, and then also trying to get the air movement. So a lot of what's being lost is actually through just the pinholes and like little spots in the building that might have air leakage. So the cheapest thing you can do is probably get like an energy audit, actually get your house audited and find out where the air leakage is. That's probably the least expensive thing to do if you have a house already. And then probably insulation after that, and then probably a more efficient air conditioner after that, um, that's more expensive by far. But yeah, air is a big thing, and then with air moves moisture. And so anytime you have air moving through from one temperature to the other, you're gonna get condensation. So kind of plugging the, the holes where there might be leakage in your house, look around windows I and mean, then just in, in walls and things like that, relatively inexpensive. It can be performed by a professional. They'll come out and they can put an aerosol in the air or they can come and just foam the walls to steal it up. As boring as it sounds, insulation is probably the best when you have a big swing from hot to cold during the year. Suppose, like where it's always hot or always cold or majority cold. And then for new construction, putting the insulation in the right place. So, a lot of times, putting it as far to the outside of the building as you can, which is often called a, a rain screen, back ventilated rain screen, just to make sure that you don't have dips in your thermal profile of like your wall. So, it's kind of hidden. A lot of it's not necessarily the most visible part of the wall, maybe too many architects in. But insulation, and then there are things particularly when you move outside of like home construction, when you get into like, let's say, a retail scale, think of like Walmart is they put white roofs, like low albedo roofs on the top of their buildings, like they don't want to spend money on uh, heating and cooling. And so a lot of flat roof buildings a lot of times will have a really light colored roof just to reflect heat. And that doesn't really have any detriment in the
0: wintertime. What about on regular houses. I had heard about that new paint. I'm not sure whether it's hit the market yet, but the ultra white paint that reflects heat a lot better than just regular paint. Could we be seeing houses in the not too distant future with white roofs
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think you could see it. Some of the materials that are common for roofs like that are not necessarily white. They're asphalt shingles in particular. So you might find metal roofs that are painted that you know, one of the issues with that is if you have trees around your property, you can get streaking and staining. And so some people just don't like it aesthetically. But honestly, planting trees in the correct location around your, your property could be part of a larger kind of systemic passive strategy. That's maybe more like a holistic way of looking at it, but yeah, absolutely, you could find paint on, on roofs or on walls, I think, that could help with this, but it's always trying to weigh what's the most kind of effective way to do something. So, for example, planting a tree on the southern side of your house might be one of the best things you could do <laughs> to shade it during the summer, and then when the leaves fall off, it you know allows it the, the sun to hit it in the winter. And a kind of mixed climate.
0: I've also heard about the three D printing of houses mm-hmm. use, using like these huge three D printers and, and some sort of concrete mixture. I'm not sure whether it's regular concrete or super duper special concrete with the secret mm-hmm. formula. I'm not sure about a, that. A child. little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: it's, it's a little bit lighter mix. as the aggregate smaller, and the concrete there's not as big of rocks or stone, um, so it can go through the head that it's extruding it out of. So if you think of like cake batter coming out of a uh, out of a. Or, or icing coming out of a bag it's something similar to that so there are definitely people experimenting with this one of the things that the people are running into is there's not as much on-site labor as far as like a construction crew but it doesn't necessarily work well for roofs quite yet you still have to kind of frame a roof over the top of it so it works really well for walls and it doesn't insulate quite the same way that other types of construction do, because it's concrete. You, know, you actually print it with a void in between the two like very thin layers of concrete, and then there's kind of like a triangulated lattice that runs in between those. So it's almost more like a concrete block wall. There's air gaps in between the two outer layers of concrete. And that, that can be insulated, but it just it's not the same wall system quality that you might get in stick construction, like light framing, like most traditional houses. It's definitely possible. It's definitely interesting and inefficient. One of the biggest things is it's just risky. So people don't let the bank doesn't like to give loans to do that type of construction. So there's, uh, once it becomes maybe more accepted from a financing point of view, I think you will see more of it. And it, it is interesting because you can print a house in a couple of days.
0: So I'm imagining this now, because I, uh-huh. I hadn't heard about the two layers. So you've got one layer on the outside, you've got a layer on the inside, and like you said, there's kind of a lattice in between. So then do you blow the insulation in between those two? Do you need it or is the air gap enough?
1: So the air has a little bit, but it's not as insulated. Any insulation is just holding air uh, kind of in stasis, but they can put insulation into that cavity and you can leave it air, but it doesn't really work with our particular climate. It's really not the best wall system to It'd do it that It would be really way. cold, right? Yeah. And the, and the biggest thing right now is that just like we were talking about with whenever you have hot to cold movement of air is where you get condensation. And so the problem is like where you might get water in that wall system. Oh. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not a hundred percent figured out. People have worked on it and I'm sure somebody would say, yeah, we, we've got a system that works, but that as a system has, as in a as kind of a holistic wall system is not necessarily completely, everyone does not really agrees upon it. Yeah.
0: Oh, okay. Cause I could yeah. imagine, let's say you had some place like that and there was a leak in the roof. Yeah. Because it's not all one, and in the winter, and then it would freeze, and then it would expand, expand. It would, and then it would crack the concrete walls. And So that wouldn't be good.
1: No, no, I mean it, it's printed in layers, and a lot of kind of, a lot of the ones you're seeing that have been there's been large kind of like subdivisions built, um, like maybe in Austin, Texas. You know, it's it's striations because you print in levels as you go up. And so, but then there's typically a, a wood framed roof that goes actually over the top of that. So it protects most of the concrete 90, you know, 90% of the time oh, okay. from getting too much water on it. So that, you know, and, but in, again, Austin doesn't freeze very much. So you can get freeze thaw, which is a mechanical way of weathering things, drive down the highway and see a bridge that has like chunks of concrete that have fallen off of it. More than likely, that's what's happened. And similar things can happen in, in any concrete construction, but particularly where they have those layers between the different layers of the 3D print, that can, you know, it can be a, a, a potential area for water to come in.
0: Yeah, come to think of it, all the pictures that I've seen of it, of people doing it, it's usually like in really hot, sunny climates. Yeah. And they were talking about using it in places where they needed to build either housing quickly or like, uh, you know, kind of a tiny house situation for dealing with people who are homeless, et cetera, et cetera, that this maybe might be a cost effective way of doing it. But I hadn't heard of anybody really doing home construction in our area with that. And, mm-hmm. It sounds like it's because of our climate.
1: Yeah, I have to circle back with you. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm willing to bet there's someone within the near vicinity who has a machine they're trying to do it. Uh, I just don't know. What, you know, the one the closest I can I know of is, is, is in Detroit.
0: Hmm. Okay, it's just been something that I've been thinking about. And then I had also heard about that kind of concrete composite or whatever, some kind of material that helped Mm. with the insulation, right? So I thought, oh, well, if you could 3D print houses that were made of Mm. this special material, they could be cheaper, quicker, and more energy efficient if you got all those together correctly.
1: I mean, I think that that's the holy grail. And we may eventually get to that. People are trying to find that right now. I think that it's a technical problem. Like light framing has kind of taken over the entire United States because there just has historically been a lot of inexpensive lumber. That's not a common way of building things everywhere else in the world. And so I think that you'll see more of like a patchwork approach to maybe 3D printing works and there's a certain mixture of concrete with a certain type of kind of configuration of a building. And it works in this particular area. And then you have to account for the climate heats up X number of degrees. We know if we're living in Northeast Ohio, but in you know, 15, 20 years, it feels like we're living in Alabama. <laughs> you have to kind of look at the projections to see what systems you're starting to think about.
0: Right, right. And that that's yeah. kind of where I was going with this. Like, OK, we're so used to the weather being a certain way yeah. but from what i've heard from climatologists they said okay look at how hot it was last summer that's mm-hmm. the coolest it's going to be for the next forever yeah. and it was really hot last <laughs> summer it was like the, it was like the hottest summer on record so i was like huh that means that our air conditioners are going to be running full blast and that's bad for the environment too so mm-hmm what are we going to do we'll have to retrofit what we have but we'll also have to look at creative ways when we come up with new stuff because mm-hmm. it's just not going to get any cooler as we go forward
1: no i mean and I, and then again it's outside my area of expertise but in my mind a lot of it might come down to like planning and urban design i think that living kind of more closely to one another for example, a standard house, just from a kind of mathematical equation, like kind a single family house has, what, six faces, maybe five faces. It, there's a lot more surface area than if you were to live in like a row house or something like that, or more compact. And so you have the efficiency of like the amount of energy you're putting out from your own home, from just how do you cool it? But there's also like, if you don't have to drive to work and you can walk, that would also probably reduce some of your effect that might be driving that. But then also, yeah, cooling your house, we're going to have to do that. So I think that in my mind, the energy retrofits or deep energy retrofits are going to be something that is necessary where you have existing building stock. You're already seeing this all over the place in in Europe, particularly in Central Europe, where they're looking at actually just cladding buildings. They, They basically build big insulated walls and they bring them around the exterior, particularly like social housing and then just snap it to the exterior. There's been people in really? Boston that have looked at this. Yeah. Oh. And that's really interesting. There's a lot of government funding for research for retrofitting and in updated guidelines as they as people follow different climate reports. So it's a little different model in the United States, but I think that the idea of retrofitting is within most cities, states, and national kind of, there's, there's, there's guidelines for that.
0: So that's kind of cool. So instead yeah. of thinking of your house and like, okay, I might want to put siding on it. Yeah. What you're talking about is, oh, I might want to build New walls that have an air gap, and then extend my roof or something over it. Is that the idea?
1: Correct. Yeah. Imagine if you you imagine if you're putting new siding on your house, but it's like eight inches thick of polystyrene foam (laughs) or something like that. So it's it's lightweight, and it has to be tailored to your windows and all that kind of stuff. And then there's various different types of finishes on the exterior. But yeah, like the idea of like putting a kind of heavy jacket on, or it doesn't really work because sometimes you're trying to cool the inside, but thinking of like putting a cooler around yeah. your house. Yeah.
0: You're like putting your house in a giant Coleman cooler.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Building <laughs> house, a, type, th- a <laughs> thin house around your existing house. I mean, that's an intense, <laughs> that's an intensive solution, right? Like think that right. versus like if your house is doesn't, is like there's uninsulated houses, you know, where you have two right. by six studs and nothing in between it. So there's definitely lower tech versions, but that one is like exciting because it's like, it also changes the visual appearance of the house or the housing block, yeah.
0: Your house is like the Marshmallow Man house. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, there's been a lot of work, particularly by the people who won the, I don't know if you know what the Pritzker Prize is. The Pritzker Prize is basically the highest award you can win as an architect. And there's been a couple of Lactin Vassal, a French-Belgian firm, did a bunch of retrofits of housing projects in France, like social housing projects, where they actually put insulation on the outside and then they extended almost like greenhouses on the outside of it. So they basically just made kind of like a thermal buffer, but it was one you could inhabit and it could also be like a garden. So you got more space within your apartment, then you also got kind of a lag of thermal temperature moving through your house. Retrofitting is very much in the air all over the country, but for, even within the kind of highest awards of architecture within the last couple of years.
0: It, what that's reminding me of is I saw this article recently, and I, I guess they kind of came into vogue in the 70s, but uh, it's called the Earthships. Uh-huh. They, they're really weird looking houses and they, sure. they make them like out of you know concrete and they've got like bottles embedded in them. Yeah. Stuff. But one of the features is that they have, it's kind of like an internal greenhouse kind of deal. Where like you've got your living room, but then there's also these huge trees and plants and stuff like right in your house, which I thought, well, that's cool. Although yeah. I wouldn't want to invite the bugs in.
1: The biggest community I know of those are outside of Taos, New Mexico. Uh-huh. And the whole like system of things. And, you know, they say face south almost exclusively and they regulate temperature or they absorb in the kind of thermal mass like you were talking about. A lot of them are built out of tires that are compressed of, of earth. You know, they work very well with a particular kind of lifestyle. <laughs> And a particular density, you know, not very dense. They typically are single family. There definitely are, is a push to find application for that type of thinking at the larger scale. And a lot of times it's, again, that's the extreme version of it. And it's, it was kind of utopian version of it. And it's found kind of maybe more mundane application in a lot of buildings. But, you know, my dad worked on underground houses in Oklahoma when I was a kid. Uh, and, you know, was, underground houses are kind of like the cousin of Earthships, you know, very much kind of passive solar.
0: So that's an interesting
1: strategy. (laughs)
0: Yeah, it is. I mean, in fact, I was talking to, I think, one of your colleagues there, Kent, State, a while back about what one way, if you were building a house in this area new, what you Mm -hmm. might want to think about is maybe geothermal instead of Mm -hmm. thinking about solar, because, we, you know, we don't have really great solar, certainly in the winter. And I was like, I wish I had the money to build a brand new house. I might want to do that, you know, build it into the side of a hill and have a lot of it kind of sways eye underground, but have big windows Mm -hmm. on the front and be able to save energy that way. But I don't have the money to do that, but it would be cool if I did. Sure.
1: I mean, that's a, that's a heavy duty retrofit. <laughs> that. I mean, for example, the architecture building at Kent State has a geothermal system. And then you have to have a certain amount of area to recharge your wells. If you ever get a chance to tour that building, the basement has an enormous geothermal system in it. Yeah, it can be a really great system. Again, it, I think that it's not a one size fits all type of thing. It, it would be a discussion you'd want to have with an architect to figure out like, is this going to be like, how long are you going to stay there? Do you want to build it just for, to pay off your bill? Or are you, are you going just in the life cycle of the whole building, and then you know, is it the area you're in actually the best place to do it? You know, are you going to spend a bunch of money drilling down way deeper than it would be than uh, where another system like a heat pump or a kind of combined system might actually be a better situation?
0: Well, that's all really interesting, and I appreciate <laughs> you taking the time with me. Sure, because I recognize that things are changing, and people only have so much budget. But if there's things that people can do economically, it sounds like there is insulate and make your house more energy efficient, and then if you have the money you could work with an architect and you might find some creative solutions that could sustain you as the temperature rises and the climate changes. So that sounds pretty
1: great. It's exciting. And it's both a terrifying prospect, I think, of the climate situation we live in, but I think it's producing creative solutions, which is what I love about education and why I'm happy to to answer questions like this. It's good that people are, are interested.
0: That was Dr. Nick Safely, who's an assistant professor of environmental design in the College of Architecture at Kent State University. And I'm Jean Destro. Thanks for listening. Stay happy and healthy, and we'll see you again next week. This has been This Week in Tech with Jean Destro on WAKR, brought to you by Cartridge World in North Canton.